you miss hanging out at bars with a friend? Cream, cream ale. Do you miss those two friends of yours that would always end up drinking too much, leading to discussions about political philosophy? If so, then we have a podcast for you. When they nuked the Capitol, you know, that was bad. I'm Aaron. And I'm Jake. Join us at the tavern for a pint, a few laughs, and some nonsensical discussions. I will say neither of us are constitutional lawyers. <laughs> a political podcast for the unencumbered political mind. Search for the Bull and Moose Tavern on your favorite podcast streaming service today. He managed to make Trump look good on something. It's like, bad. Need more context on your favorite movie? Is Obama. Obama. Okay. Senator Obama. Ever wonder why they did or didn't do that thing or include that scene? This is prime. Like, this is, this is quality entertainment. Check out Gutsy Media Podcast as my friends and I take a deep dive into everything from blockbusters to indie films. The weakest apple cider bitch beers. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. That's Gutsy Media Podcast for everything movies. The following is a DFAT Entertainment Podcast, recorded and edited by Jake Duell. Welcome to the podcast. So much for having me. Oh, thank you for joining. You are my biggest guest yet. You are a published <laughs> author. You know, it's been local Rochester people and a couple other friends, but, uh, you know, I have one friend in Minnesota outside of that. You're my only guest outside of the Rochester area. Reaching all the way from Rochester to Ithaca, New York. Oh, yeah. All the way from Rochester to Ithaca. Our, uh, my family's go-to getaway during this awesome pandemic has been Ithaca. We've gone twice now. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was nice. So we walked Cornell and I got this amazing drink called the Sled, I think, at Ithaca Bakery. Okay. Uh, and then we stayed at that brand new hotel uh, uh, right at the end of that walkable street that they've completely blocked off. And it's got Carl Sagan's uh, Planet Walk on the street. Okay. The canopy? Yeah, the canopy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we stayed at the canopy while we were there. And then the other time we rented a lake house over on Seneca Lake and then drove over to Ithaca. So yeah. I think oddly enough, my my brother, I believe, was staying at the canopy when everything when like the wheels came off and everything. <laughs> like doing he was uh in town for work and doing campus visits up at Cornell and, and was at that hotel and was like, I have to go home now. Oh, yeah. It, it's been a fun pandemic that I hope gets better, you know. So, yeah. But I, I wanted to talk to you about books and comics and all that fun stuff. So I, I want to start off with uh, dust jackets on hardcover books. I, I want to start off with something that very much bothers me. So last year, I set out to read 20 books in 2020. And I 
read 32 and I've got a lot of hardcover books. And there's something about dust jackets that just bother me while I'm reading a book. Like I always tear them right off and put them right on the bookshelf. Yeah, it's um, it's such a matter of taste. So I I will not tolerate them while I'm reading them. So this is this is the book that I'm reading right now, uh, which is in the house, and uh, it's it's jacket is sitting here on my desk. Um, I don't mind them on the shelf. I usually like stow them and 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 put them uh, put them back. Um, I am I'm I'm a big comic book reader, and uh, now that I'm like older and like a little more middle class. Um, <laughs> I, I prefer to buy comic books in hardcover and, and I'm really, I'm a little more sticklery about, uh, about the dust jackets uh, on comic books. And if, uh, if the dust jacket is just reproducing the, the cover art that is all that is under there. Yeah. I ditched those. Um, but for, for regular hardcover books, I, you know, there's so much, so many of them are just such pretty objects and, and the amount of like design works that goes into, um, into hardcover covers is, is amazing and fantastic. Yeah. I mean, like the artwork on the dust jackets is usually amazing, but like, for example, I, I just read, I'm getting into the Star Wars legacy stuff. So I read the very first Thrawn book, Heir to the Empire, and it was the hardcover 20th anniversary edition and i had left the dust jacket on for reading the first chapter and i took it off and right under the dust jacket was like an embossed cover of the original book cover and i'm like all of the the dust jacket was was it said thrawn 20th anniversary edition why were you hiding this behind a dust jacket I mean, I, I love it that, and I think it, it tends to happen. It seems to me much more in in sci-fi publishing that like the packaging is just so layered. And uh, like, I I guess it was like last year. I, I never imagined that I would need to buy another copy of Dune. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Ace Books put out this copy of Dune, and, and a friend of mine who's an editor there kept posting pictures from the the production stills of it. It's like everything, like it had these beautiful end papers and the cover graphic is really nice. And then you take the cover off and the the, uh, the actual like the actual cover is beautiful. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'm spending another 30 bucks on a copy of Dune. Was that the one that's got the blue pages at the end of it? Yeah, I've seen that yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, like I already had a nice copy of Dune. <laughs> yeah. So Dune was actually the first book I finished in 2020. And it's probably a book now that I've read it that I might go back and reread because the issue I had with Dune is I kept having to go to that glossary in the back when they were bringing up these terms. And I'm like, wait, who are these people again? How are they? You crafted way too big of a world in this one book. Like, yeah, I, I did not actually reread it when I bought a new copy, but I, I read probably the first like 50 or so pages again. And it's, you know, there are all these rules that you sort of internalize as as a writer and a lot of them have to do with with ideas of, of cost and how much you can expect, how much work you can expect a reader to do. And then I'm reading this and just watching Frank Herbert violate all of these rules. <laughs> like, here's your here's five pages. And now go figure out what all these words mean. It was so rough. I, I don't know. So I switched between physical books and audiobooks. I've done Audible for a year. And I don't know if that would be a book I would enjoy on Audible because I feel like it was too complex i think it would be simultaneously too slow and too dense oh yeah like i i think it, it takes it, it's a long 
it's a long book obviously but it, it it's also like it's a slog and it, it's a it's a good 60 pages of like getting the ground under your feet yeah uh you know one of the books i read last year uh was chuck windig's wanderers and i loved that oh, yeah. book but the first hundred pages were just getting everything set up and i was like man this book is moving so slow and then i just couldn't put it down after that it was one of those books yeah. but yeah that's, i mean that's something you can do in a, in a book of, of that scale in a book that's like 700 pages like dune or or i mean god what is wanderers like nine i think it was or 900 or something yeah yeah I, I feel like i should like carry that book with me if i'm ever worried i'm gonna get shot um <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a hefty one. Yeah, but it um, you know, it it does it changes the rules around what you can do in writing, and I think uh, there there is not <laughs> there's nobody out there teaching like writing workshops for writing a thousand page book, um, but it is it, the, that level of like of of sort of uh, laying foundation down is um, it's really cool, and it's not. Um, it's not something that often appeals to me as a reader, but when it when it's pulled off well, it's really good. And I think, you know, those are, I I can't remember why. Well, I read I read Chuck's book because it was Chuck, but like Dune, I think I, Dune has had sort of a reclamation moment in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years where people are like, oh, you guys know it's an environmental metaphor. And like, oh, <laughs> like it had a sort of, it, garnered a sort of hipster cachet that it did not have where like it was like a deeply sci-fi book um but it's actually like it's kind of fun in a for a certain value of the word fun <laughs> yes it, it was one of those books that like i had always known about as being like one of these sci-fi books that you should read i'm in a group uh geek group facebook chat and we've talked about it so i finally read it because of the movie that was coming out uh this year next year some point and then after i read it i'm a huge star wars fan one of the other podcasts i do is a star wars podcast and i went oh shit george stole tatooine right from this book oh yeah it tatooine is arrakis dune like the sandworms everything about it like this is dune yeah you know i'm i'm not big on sort of sci-fi gatekeeping and the, this idea that you have to have read certain books but very often when you when you go back to stuff like that that's sort of what you realize is that you've like you kind of know it already um and i, I think you know like the other big example of that would be lord of the rings but now lord of the rings is so, you know since the movies it's so ubiquitous and it's so like everybody has at least a little taste of it but when those when that existed just as books and really weird ass 80s cartoons um it was still so um it was it was so heavy in the fantasy genre that like even if you had never gone near the tokian stuff you you'd still like absorbed a lot of it and and dune is is definitely like one of those one of those books which doesn't again doesn't mean that you can't do like you can't write or or know a lot about sci-fi without like you don't need to be like oh i see what you're doing there that's that's a riff on arrakis um but it, it's certainly like it has that level of of influence yeah and you know i wanted to read it because of everything but now i was like i'm kind of glad i read it because i got to see this 
influential book to the science fiction, but fantasy is another one. I've actually never read Lord of the Rings. I've seen the movies. I picked up the first book, I think, when I was too young to really grasp it, and it just kind of turned me off to it. So it's now a book series that I might go back to, but I tried it on audiobook, and one of the weird things is I love Star Wars production audiobooks. They put the music in, their sound effects, but the Lord of the Rings one, that very first scene where they're uh, in Frodo's house, they actually have voices in the background having conversations that makes it hard to hear what Gandalf is saying. And I'm like, okay, this is not one I can do in audiobook, at least the way they produced it. So. Yeah, I, I had a similar, I think I tried to read those. Um, I mean, I read The Hobbit as a kid. And then I think I tried to read, um, I read Fellowship when I was in like eighth grade, maybe. And then you hit two towers and they're just walking for like <laughs> 200 pages. They're walking and singing songs and telling history. And I'm like, forget this, I'm out of here. And when the movies started coming out, um, I think maybe it was around the first movie. A friend of mine, like one of my close friends was like, found out I had never read it. And uh, she's like, okay, just so you know, if you don't read all these books by the time the movie, by the time we go see the movie, I'm not going to be friends with you anymore. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And I really, as a, like, as an adult with much more patience, I really liked it, but they're not, you know, there, there are certain books that are just not things that you throw at a kid because, because they take time. And like, you know, when I was like, 30 i'm like oh fine this is a book where they're going to walk and sing songs for 200 pages um but as a as a 13 year old kid that's not that's not appealing to me yeah no and i think it's a book series i would love now because i as my i read a lot of nonfiction too and i've read a lot of um books about mythology like i read some joseph campbell stuff and i know that those books are steeped in mythology and i love uh, Thor really got me into Norse mythology, like Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology. I've read some of the non-edited versions of the myths. So I, and I know he pulled a lot of his stuff from those mythologies. So I feel like I'd love Lord of the Rings now, but at uh, I think I picked it up at twelve years old, and that was way too young to try to read that book. Yeah, and that that's sort of the problem with with this idea of gatekeeping is like when you say like, well, you can't, you can't understand that because you haven't read this. What it, what it ends up doing, I think a lot of the time is turning people off. And like, if you, if you are saying to, to someone, I don't, I also don't think they're, they're good introductions to the genre. So if you're saying to someone who's never read a lot of fantasy, like, oh, start with fellowship. Like, (laughs) you might as well just like smash their face into a wall. That person is not going to read another fantasy novel. I mean, uh, that's not entirely like that's not universally true but like a lot of people are going to bounce off that um and that's why you know like certain you know like uh there are just there's so many ways into these genres that to say like oh you've got to come in through through lord of the rings you've got to come in through dune um is is silly and then like and obviously like very grounded in ideas of race and gender yes yeah i I mean fantasy was not something i really picked up in book form for the longest time like i was a DD fan i liked a lot of the fantasy tv shows but i was more of a sci-fi book guy and then i finally picked up a song of ice and fire and that's what got me into fantasy and then i went and uh picked up 
George R. R. Martin's Dreamscapes, his short story books, and I've both read those and listened to them multiple times. I love those short stories that he did. Yeah, but that's great. Um, I, you know, I think even if somebody like likes the the Ice and Fire books, you have to figure out for them what what's appealing to them about that, and and like give them something that that comes next. And I, I came to those really late, also on a bet. <laughs> a friend of mine the deal was he had never seen the wire and i had never read the game of thrones books and i was like all right i will read the first one you need to watch the first season of the wire and he uh he dropped the ball he did not he because he doesn't he didn't like uh realist television so he's like you know like just totally steeped in in fantasy stuff and there were things that i really liked about the the ice and fire books and a lot of it had to do with structure and um ideas of like what was what was at risk and um they were generally not a type of book that i like uh that's sort of high fantasy but then the the moment it was when when brand gets pushed out the window i was like oh we're doing something we're doing something different here um where like the the stakes are are completely different and you know the books are structured in such a way that like every bit uh ends on a cliffhanger and you have like, well, I'm going to read three more chapters to get back to, uh, to Ned or back to, to the um, next. Yeah. And then like, they're really well structured, especially the early ones. I, I think they're getting a little, <laughs> they're getting a little sprawly, but um, especially the early ones, they're really like well done, well structured books. And, um, and they kind of like re they, they ask you to re-examine ideas about fantasy novels. Yeah those bets are good. Uh, you know, I got my wife to finally watch star Wars by, I had never seen the Harry Potter movies. So I would watch the Harry Potter movies if she'd watch star Wars. So that's how I got her to finally watch star Wars. <laughs> a bet think, like that. I think it's fine. And, and kind of cool. If people like, if people don't like, if you know, I, I was teaching, I, I taught a class in genre fiction last semester and I, you know, I rolled in with all these assumptions that ever that we had these these shared texts, and about an hour into the first class, I was like, "Well, well, let's let's pause a minute here. How many of you guys have never seen a Star Wars?" <laughs> and <laughs> and like there were there, I had like a student who had never seen any Star Wars movies. I had a student who'd never read or or seen uh, Harry Potter. And I'm like, "This is great. This is really interesting, and it's going to make my life as a as a teacher here." much more difficult <laughs> if I can't just shorthand that. Um, but there's, I think there's something awesome about the idea of people um, coming into these genres as creators who maybe don't know that like, oh, these are the rules that we've all agreed to play by. Like we, we're all gonna know Star Wars. Like someone who just comes in sort of comes in green and is like, well, I think maybe these should be the rules. Um, I, you know, I think there's a there's a benefit to knowing these things and and being able to play with them and play against them. But there there is also there's something to be said for um, for not um, not carrying all this baggage, all this sort of tradition baggage uh, into your work with you. Yeah, and you know, on that same transition or baggage and transitioning, comic books are something that have so much baggage with them like all the well what storyline are we in which universe are we in you know uh i don't know if you know this gets into are you a marvel or dc guy i uh i i am neither 
<laughs> or both i, I guess both um yeah. i i think um i I'm, I'm a bit older than you um i grew up sort of in the the tail end of that um i was actually a big reader that the moment that they they did the second big crossover <laughs> this would have been oh god like 25 years ago uh marvel versus dc um and it was it was like a moment of corporate cooperation <laughs> uh, that could never happen again due to like the, the value of these these intellectual properties. Um, but I I was more like I, I picked and chose characters and now I sort of pick and choose writers there. I mean, there are still characters and, and sets of characters that I will always like follow and read, but I don't really side with, I, I think both, um, both of those companies work off a different sort of ethos and a different set of archetypes and there's there are appeals to me um with both of those yeah i was never a specific person so i'm more of a batman and thor person but thor opened up uh, jason Aaron to me so i've read a lot of his marvel stuff because he only writes for marvel i would love if he actually at some point went over to dc and i think he could do an awesome batman and i know that happens in comic world people cross Jeez. over and all that so he started at Vertigo. Did he? His first, uh, well, his, there's something he did that was smaller, and I, that he did a, a short series for Vertigo that I cannot recall the name of, but then he did Scalped, um, which was a longer Vertigo series. It's actually really hard to find now. They, they started reprinting it and then, and then stopped it, but he did a series set on a Native American uh, reservation. Oh, cool. Ran for 50 or 60 issues for Vertigo with, oh, I'm forgetting the artist's name and I feel terrible about it. Um, but this would have been, yeah, before he, before he really, I, I think that's what, what got him the work at Marvel. Yeah. And when it comes to comics, I think a lot of the stuff that I really like actually don't come from the big two. Like mm -hmm. my absolute favorite comic book was Joe Hill's Lock and Key. I thought that was oh, an yeah. amazing piece of work. And then, um, I, I picked up when uh, Scott Snyder, he did a, a mini run called Wake, which was 10 issues and it was a full story. That was pretty good. That's and the then, underwater one, right? That's the underwater one. Mer people, yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah, with the, mer, with the mer people. Spoilers there, scary mer people. Yes. Yeah. And then for the longest time I was into American Vampire and then I fell off when, I think it was like after World War II. Uh, this where the storyline went after world war ii and that's something yeah, I, probably... I lost track of that one I, I i saw that they were uh that they were back into that they were doing that again and and have been meaning to sort of catch up on that book but yeah yeah but... i liked that for a while that was one that, that was a, that was probably the first of his books that i read and i got into it because uh stephen king was associated with it and it turned out stephen king was writing like six pages in his <laughs> yeah, he, he wrote but, very but little when of i it. figured that out i was like oh this 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 Snyder kid's got some chops. I love what he did with the vampire lore and kind of like everything's a vampire as the book expands. Like there's werewolves that are, they yeah. call them vampires, like all that stuff. Sadly, my comic books right now, and not really sad because they're actually decent comic books. I have a four-year-old going on five who fell in love with My Little Pony and oh. I found the My Little Pony comic books for her and she loves them. So I read her two of those a night before she goes to sleep. 
Yeah, I, my my little one is five going on six, and uh, we have we have read our fair share of pony comics. Um, <laughs> we uh, I we read Squirrel Girl together. We had almost I think the entire run of Ryan North's uh, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, which is a weird experience with a kid because a lot of that is like flying right over her head <laughs> and um it's also i don't know if you've read the series at all but like there there are little notes on the bottom and you don't have time if you're reading them to a kid you don't have time to read them at all oh they're like little there are like little extra jokes in uh like really fine print and in light type along the bottom and i, I so i haven't read any of any of the extra jokes um, but yeah, we read a lot of Ryan North and Erica Henderson's um, Squirrel Girl. We've read some Miss Marvel. I, there's like so much stuff uh, that a lot of it I'm sort of stockpiling for her. And, um, but like, it, it's it's unimagin unimaginable to me as someone who grew up reading comics like starting in the 90s that there is so much, like I look back on that stuff, I'm like, I would never read this share this with a child <laughs> like a small child um i and it's so anti-feminist it's so like like exploitative and and now there's just like there's so much cool stuff that that like that we're going to get to read together and it's very exciting we uh the most recent one was um we've been reading iron heart by e viewing yeah the other one i do with her there's um and it's a little bit more aimed towards kids. There's a series of Spider-Man comics called, um, I want to say they're called Marvel Avengers Spider-Man or something. Oh, yeah. And it was a Disney TV show where they're all like miniature miniature versions of themselves. And she loved those for a while. And those surprisingly got deep into the lore at times. Like Thanos made an appearance and I'm like, this feels like a heavy appearance for a kid's comic. So uh, but those were fun. And, you know, I, I love comics. The hardest thing I found is my pull bag got way too expensive at one yeah. point. So I've stopped doing a pull bag. Yeah, I um, I don't read that much month to month now, although um, except for the Xbooks. Um, since uh, since Hawksbox and since Hickman, I got back into like picking up floppies in fact that's what's like sitting on my desk right now is a copy of new mutants um and it's kind of great like I, I mean the the books themselves are really great but it's also like it's nice to go back into into a comic book store every wednesday and then like pick up a couple of loose issues and you know sit down and, and read read one for like 10 minutes so and, like the waiting is is there's there's something about that that has always been a part of my life and it's nice to return to it so you're a big fan of the X-Men then. I mean, yeah. I, I could guess that from the things I've seen and the books I've read uh, yeah. that you have a huge inspiration within the X-Men world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I started, uh, this is like to totally date myself. I started reading comics um, uh, around the death of Superman. So this is like early nineties and um so shortly, shortly after I started as a reader, I started um, working for a, a comic book dealer. And so I, I would see all this stuff and, you know, there, like certain stuff, like it, it was just a matter of like what covers were interesting. 
And um, so I, I started reading X-Men with the Executioner song, which is, is a really, if you know X-Men is a really weird <laughs> place to start reading because it's deeply steeped in like 10 and 15 year old continuity. Um, it, it's like paying off on stuff from like, like 1988. Um, but I loved that part of it. I loved this idea of like there being a deep history. And, and at the time there weren't many trades being published. So you had to like hunt for stuff. And so it was always like, Oh, if I, I scored this one issue and now I know who, who the hell Madeline Pryor is. Um, and uh, so like that, that idea of like a sort of, broad and deep history was really appealing to me. And then the idea of continuity, the idea of things that are like, that are ongoing. And that, I mean, that's how I got in. Like you, you pick up the, the death of Superman and you get to the end and you're like, well, what, but, but what happens next? And then somebody's there to say like, well, next week there's another book. Go, oh, all right, well, hey, <laughs> I, I guess my dad's gonna have to drive me back to the comic book store next week. Yeah, uh, X-Men is not something I, it's just, I missed the peak X-Men. Like I watched the cartoon when mm-hmm. I was a kid, uh, but I was more of a Spider-Man person. And I think it was because Spider-Man was just from my age, a little bit more kid friendly than X-Men was. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, I'm getting into the X-Men and, you know, I watched the movies. They were always some of them were great. Some of them were horrible, but now there's WandaVision and I know everyone's saying this is based off uh, house of M, which is something I've never read before. So I'm like, sure. It's a really good adaptation. If it is like, I'm liking what they're doing, but I, I yes. don't know. I mean, I, I think first of all, anyone who tells you that WandaVision is based on comic book X is, is wrong. <laughs> there are so many elements um, sort of at play in that show. Um, but, you know, the, the thing about, about X-Men and the thing why, weirdly, it's like something really dear to me that I almost never recommend, it's like, it's impenetrable. You know, I, I like, I joked, I, I, a, a couple months ago, I, I was on an X-Men podcast and, and we were talking about the fact that like, that was where, that was my starting point. And, and the host was like, that's a really weird starting point. But there's no... There's no starting point in in X Men particularly that isn't already steeped in this continuity, and like even this most recent relaunch, which is great and like completely changes the metaphor and makes everything like super relevant. And I was I was watching you know I'm watching these comics come out as uh, my second book is is about to come out. And I'm like so many of the ideas that that are in this book are now being played out in the comics, and people are gonna think that I like somehow ripped off Jonathan Hickman <laughs> like in a week. Uh, um, but e- even that, it, it's so built on like referencing the past and on the sort of deep history of these characters. And so like, while that is something that I really love about it, it makes it really hard to like hand somebody an X-Men comic and be like, well, this is where you start and it's gonna be awesome for you. Like, unless you wanna sit there with them and, and just like every panel be like, oh, and the reason they're doing that, <laughs> um, you know, it's a massive cast and they've all been sort of together for, you know, whatever, like 60 years. And all of that continuity is con- constantly in play. 
and there's no good intro to it whereas like you can kind of hand somebody a spider-man comic and be like he's a dude he got bit by a radioactive spider and now he can cling to walls and stuff um and like go yeah and i think along with that enough comic books have it it seems like x-men has a more complex continuity like with batman i could be like here's court of owls you can start here knowing nothing about batman and you're fine or with thor i can be like here's the god butcher storyline you need to know nothing about thor you can start here and I feel like X-Men isn't quite like that, where you can just be like, start here. Well, I think, you know, with um, with both of those characters or with Spider-Man, like, there are, like, really simple core metaphors with all of those um, that a new writer is just going to sort of, is going to refocus on, on certain parts of it. Um, whereas, like, the X-Men metaphor, and this is this is the appeal for me, and this is, like, why you know why the books are largely like sort of um homage to to x-men is like that that metaphor is always unstable um you know because the the sort of the the core thing about about x-men or about mutants is that you know this idea like there are here they are heroes who fight for a world that fears and hates them and then but then none of that makes sense (laughs) Like within the Marvel universe, within the comics, why, why would people hate these ones and not those ones? Like, why are these guys hated for having powers and the Avengers are not? And so, like, already, the metaphor becomes unstable. And then, and then you try to like apply it to real world concepts, and you say like, well, is this about race? Well, no, it, it it's a terrible metaphor for civil <laughs> rights and race. So. So that never works, but it's all, but even though it doesn't work and it doesn't sit stably, it's always there. It's like a built, it's a layer in the strata and characters are acting as if it is, <laughs> as if this is what is actually going on. And then like it, okay, maybe it's a metaphor for certain characters. It's a metaphor for, uh, for anti-Semitism. <laughs> and like that gets, you know, like people, I don't, I don't know if everybody knows this, but like, Magneto within the X-Men wasn't Jewish until like, until like 1980. He wasn't canonically Jewish until 1980. And then like the, the idea of him being a Holocaust survivor gets built in and like all of a sudden you have all these other um, motivations for the character. And then being a mutant as a, a mutant discrimination as a form of anti-Semitism gets built into this, this strata, but it doesn't, it also doesn't work. <laughs> and so it's constantly unstable. And then like, the idea of it as a metaphor for disability rights or for queer rights, like all of these things are there. None of them work. And all of them are still like, still in play in every book. And I, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> but like, also it's very difficult to like hand that book to somebody and say like, okay, so it's a metaphor for things, but it's all, you know, and, but it, to the extent that there is, a, a core idea around X-Men, it's an idea of found family and found family is like one of the most attractive uh, concepts to me as a, as a fiction writer is like how to, how do communities and how do groups uh, come together and, and especially how do, how do they come together um, from people who are like severed from traditional family or traditional societal structures and and x-men is is always that no matter what other weird unstable stuff is going on it is always about like 
like this group of people coming together for some sort of common cause, even yeah. if that cause makes no sense. I, it's something I never got into, but love the characters. Like I'm a huge Wolverine fan. And personally with my final point on WandaVision, since I brought that up, I, I know they said that there's going to be a Luke Skywalker level uh, cameo in it. I'm really hoping and I know there's questions, is Evan Peters Quicksilver or not from the Fox universe? I want to see Magneto or Professor X. I, I think like having Patrick Stewart roll in in a wheelchair as Professor X and being the only one who can break Wanda out of this simulation she created would be huge like that would be a luke skywalker level event yeah i that is a big promise <laughs> and um and this is also one of those things where like being a huge comic book nerd like maybe messes you up for that because like i was like oh i, I don't know when this is going to go up and uh, like within oh, like the, the next few days last week is the is the huge spoiler <laughs> like <laughs> yeah um yeah i am i am also kind of I have very mixed feelings about adding mutants to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, I think there are like narrative reasons that are, it, it's gonna be really difficult for it to work. Also the, the X-Men could school the Avengers with like like their B team. <laughs> um, there is no, I, I don't want, I, I never want an Avengers versus X-Men movie um, because it's just not that interesting to me and, and because the X-Men like, could completely school the Avengers. Um, but there's also part of me that just like, I, I want Michael Fassbinder to like show up at the door. I would, I would make such a high pitched noise. It would be, <laughs> like, yeah. If this glass in my house would shatter. The funny thing is I either want it to be Patrick Stewart as Professor X or Fassbender as Magneto. <laughs> like those aren't the same <laughs> level of x-men storylines because those got convoluted too yeah. but i think the the only way they make the x-men work is through the coming multiverse stuff like the multiverse of madness and stuff there's no way you naturally introduce the x-men into that established world yeah it's it's funny to me because like, like i feel like i could write the how do you get the fantastic four in here um not that hard no problem at all but I, I don't even really look at the like solving the X-Men problem, e even as like uh, from like a fanfic uh, point of view, because it, it's just it's a logistical nightmare. Um, but yeah, I mean, e even the stuff that WandaVision is already sort of the, the last episode, I was like jumping up and down twice. And I, I, I knew both both of the things that were going to happen in the last episode. And I was still like, ah! <laughs> I, I mean, I was the same way when that last episode of the Mandalorian, I was like, Oh my God, I know who this is. They really went there. Oh my God. Like freaking out about it. So. Yeah. I, I think, but I think there's also, there, there've been smaller reveals in the Mandalorian that didn't land for me quite like, because I'm not, I'm not as versed in that. I had the same uh, the same thing recently watching Picard, where like somebody would show up and I was because I, I just watched it like a couple weeks ago for the first time and I really liked it, but I'm not a big Star Trek person, 
and like somebody would show up and I, I'd be like, somebody was really excited about this <laughs> and I'm, I'm really psyched for them. And yeah. so like Monica Rambo getting powers is, is that for me? <laughs> um, but I'm like, okay, this is seven of nine and she is relevant to Star Trek in ways and, and great. <laughs> yeah, um, I I probably had one of those scenes with Mandalorian uh, when Cobb Vance showed up on Tatooine, which was this offshoot character in Chuck Wendig's Aftermath novel that had a couple chapters. And I remember originally season one, I'm like, guys, we're on Tatooine. Cobb Vance is going to show up to my Star Wars friends. And they're like, who is this guy? And I send it to him. And then he appears and I was like, oh my God, guys, I was right. They they brought in Cobb Vance to the show. Oh my God. So yeah, I had that moment in Star Wars with, you know, that. Lore. Yeah, but I think, you know, the, the strength of that show, and I think the strength of WandaVision too, is that it works without that, you know? Like, oh yeah, it I, totally does. Um, Like I, I didn't get, you know, when they like pan, pan by the shot of like the guy that plays Boba Fett and I'm like, I don't okay there's a bald dude um that's apparently important um and uh you know i i think the fact that wandavision is like has been really popular and it's not necessarily these people that that are like oh yeah well i i'm deeply steeped in the incredibly weird backstory of the scarlet witch yeah which i want to see like, i want to like, see where it goes yeah like if you've read the comics there's like evaporating babies and there's a i think there's a bad guy that has like demon sock puppet hands like there's a lot of weird weird stuff around the scarlet witch yeah yeah well there's a lot of weird stuff around comics yeah so i want to before i want to talk to you about your books but i also want to talk to you about this internet archive thing that's going on because i follow a lot of authors on twitter and I saw it blow up a little bit last year, and it seems to be blowing up again this year because I think the lawsuit's finally moving yeah. forward. And pretty much what they were doing is, if I understand this right, they owned rights to library books. They were scanning those library books in as digital copies, which allowed people to read them, but then authors aren't getting their compensation because they're not the actual digital copy no, they don't they don't own rights to library books so first okay. of all i should establish that the internet Ar archive does a lot of really good work like their their original sort of purpose in like archiving the internet um is, is fantastic and they do a lot of really good archival work across the board what they were doing in this case and and their argument for it was like oh it's a pandemic libraries are closed um it's really difficult to uh, for people to get access to books, so we're going to we're going to assist with that. Um, and the way they were doing that was was scanning books. Um, um, and if you buy a physical copy of a book, you don't you don't have the rights to the book. <laughs> you have the book. Um, you so they're already like they're. They're sort of appropriating digital rights that they don't own, and they're doing it under uh, under I, I don't I don't know I don't know them I don't know it, how sincere this is, and I, I don't know like like 
but what they're what they're doing is they are taking rights to intellectual property that does not belong to them, and 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 they're claiming it's because otherwise people can't get these books, and that is not true. Like there are public libraries have digital copies of books. There are any number of services that exist that allow libraries to buy books, buy eBooks and audiobooks, uh, and and distribute them to patrons in ways that also benefit the creators, the people that that wrote those books. And like, I, I think a lot of times when this, so, so essentially what the internet archive is doing in this sense is, is pirating books and that nobody, they, they don't want to, to hear that. And, you know, often when it comes to this idea of, of pirating, the, the sort of slippery slope argument is like, well, what about libraries? But like libraries are buying books. <laughs> like we all, all of us who are working authors rely on the fact that libraries are buying books. Like it, it's the closest that America comes to publicly subsidizing the arts in a lot of ways. Um, in Canada, in fact, you get directly a government check. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, like this is, I just became aware of this and now I'm like, I'm, should like apply for citizenship. Um, but if a, if a library in Canada holds your book, the federal government cuts you a check for it. And that's great. And like these kinds of ideas of public subsidization of the arts uh, are, are great. Um, but the internet archive is kind of like cutting around all of that. And, and it is, you know, there is a sort of a base idea of some, some people that information wants to be free, but that ignores the fact that like, we live under capitalism and it sucks and I have to feed my kids. Yeah. So like when you take something that I have made and you give it to someone else for free, you are, you are taking me, you're like, you're damaging my living. And um, so that is sort of the basis of, that is my take on, on what is going on with the Internet Archive. And right now they are being sued by, uh, by the larger publishers and by the Authors Guild, which is sort of the, the, like the closest thing that we as, as authors, who are all essentially freelance workers, have to a union. Um, so all of us sort of pay in a little bit uh, the same way that, that someone would with the union. And so when s stuff like this happens and someone is taking our work <laughs> and damaging our ability to make a living, the Authors Guild is an organization that, that steps in and pursues um, pursues uh, legal um, legal recourse for that. Yeah, and there are tons of ways to get a hold of free ebooks legally. I mean, there's uh, Project Gutenberg, which does books that are out of copyright for free. And then I know, like, I don't know if every library system has this, but I know at least in Monroe County. Uh, I was able to apply for a digital library card at the beginning of the pandemic, download Libby, I think is the app, and they have a full library that I can put books and audiobooks on hold and then you get them for 27 days or some, it's some weird amount of time that you get the book for and you can read the book. Yeah, there's so. Libby, there's Overdrive, like almost all public libraries are going to have some option like this. And, and even if you even if you don't have a local library, even if the library like down the block from you doesn't, you can probably get a card. Like I hold a card at the New York Public Library, at my local library, 
uh, at the Cornell University Library. Like there, there's, it's not that hard to get a library card. No, it is and not. And I think, you know, I, so I, I'm imagining that the reason you brought this up to me is that I, I recently on, on Twitter got, uh, got embroiled in another one of these debates and, and I got it light. Um, you know, we, you mentioned Chuck Wendig earlier and like people, people in this debate seem to think that Chuck is like the most powerful author in all of publishing. I don't know how. He's just a dude. <laughs> um, and and he, he's, a, he's a dude that's very like, very well-spoken about this and very outspoken about this. And, um, but you know, somebody was like, you would take bread from, you would set, call the police on someone stealing bread for their starving family. I'm like, well, if like bread was available at one end of the block and someone decided, I don't want to walk all the way to the end of the block. I'm going to break the window of this bread store here and take the bread out of there. Then yeah, I would, I might like, I might tell that person to stop. I wouldn't call the cops on them because cops, but um, the, I, I don't, there, I have seen nothing but like bad faith arguments on this. And it's really, I, I had to sort of just bail um because someone like at one point i was like you know digital rights and print rights are are constituted differently in a publishing contact uh contract and someone was like citation needed i'm like i'm not going to show you my contract dude no. but like i know this this is what i do for a living don't come to where i work <laughs> um and you know there was a similar thing um I guess like two a year or two ago, where um, Kindle was was going to introduce uh, a, like audio uh, adaptive audio, yep. and there are good reasons for that, but also audio rights are constituted separately within a contract, and so the Authors Guild had to step in and be like, you know, you can't you can't do that because and. I don't, I'm not saying that I agree with the idea that you don't, that you can't buy a bundle, that you can't like purchase a hardcover book and also get the audio and the, and the ebook. But as it stands, you cannot, or in most cases cannot. And like all of those are separate ways that I can get paid and ways that I can make money for my, for my work. So like someone saying, well, I bought this book so it's okay for me to digitize it and and put it on the internet. Um, it it comes to where I live, you know. Yeah. yeah, and I know Kindle ended up doing the adaptive audio in a way because. Uh, so I've got Kindle Unlimited right now, and um, I've got uh, Audible Plus. They call it now. So they have, you get your 12 credits a year and free audiobooks. So if I get a Kindle Unlimited book that is also on Audible Plus, I'll get both of them and I can switch back and forth between them. Yeah, well, they that's, what is it called? Like WhisperSync? WhisperSync, I think. Yeah, but that's, I mean, those are all, those are all owned by the same yeah, company. Exactly. Like you're buying two versions of a product from, so... Amazon is effectively bundling those things for you at point of sale. Yeah. Uh, which is different. And if I didn't have both of those subscription services, I wouldn't get 
both of the books. It's because I subscribe to their two different services. So yeah, it, it's, uh, it's interesting to see that they tried to use the pandemic for this without calculating the fact that there were already ways to get a hold of ebooks. Yeah. I, I think the difference is about like this idea of do you have access to all of the ebooks for free? You know, and it, and if at that point it, it goes right back into, into piracy arguments. Um, and one of the arguments that somebody threw at me was like, well, somebody bought a copy of your book. So why shouldn't they be able to photograph and distribute it? And which is no different from saying like, I bought a movie ticket. And so I'm going in there and I'm going to cam this movie and, and torrent it. And like somehow one is intuitive and, and, and the other is not. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, th I think it comes down to like a, a fundamental like disagreement about the nature of, of um, like creative property and, and about, and how the internet shapes how we think about uh, information. And, and sadly, like, I think the moment for that discussion has passed uh, in a lot of ways, like I, I think we think of the internet as this like spigot of of free content, um, as much as like that that word makes me sort of twitch. And like, no, well, you pay you pay for access, you pay your your ISP for access, and uh, and everyone gets paid through ads. And like we've just decided or agreed that that's how that works. Um, and then we like we get annoyed when we, when we hit a paywall, when someone actually says like, Hey, can you throw me like a buck a month to, to read my blog? Um, and it's like, it's a deeply, it's a deeply flawed system that we're all sort of beholden to. And that, um, is probably irreparable at this point. Yeah. Uh, I've never been the biggest fan of the internet and, uh, social media and stuff on this podcast. I think it has, profoundly broken society in a way what the internet has done to us uh but it's become a pivotal thing to everyday life we can't turn away from it now so it's done amazing things you know it's done uh, like i i have more of a professional com um community on twitter than i do in real life at this point because like it i don't live in new york city um and and it, like it gives me access to to like actually communicate with people that, that do the same work as I do. So like, I'm not knocking the internet. I'm, I'm saying like the economic structures around it have to be, have to be acknowledged um, whether or not they can be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, talking about the internet back when I was still on Facebook, that's how I discovered your books. Your brother posted onto the PyCapify uh, SUNY Brockport page that you had a book coming out and go get it. Uh, it's this book right here, 100,000 Worlds. And I didn't go get this book. I ended up reading your first one I read by you was The Somebody People, which we'll talk about those two together. Uh, but my first trip to Ithaca, I went to a little local bookstore there, Buffalo Street Books, and they had two copies. And I picked one up while I was there. So that's yeah, that how is, I got this book. That is literally down the block from me and also my former employer. So, yeah. I was, I was working for that bookstore when I wrote that book. Well, they had two copies left when I was in there in July or August. I don't know. It was sometime yeah. when the sun was still out. 
<laughs> I don't know what it's like, you know, down in Ithaca during the winter, but it is a constant gray up in Rochester all the time. This this one has been particularly brutal. This has been uh, a little feeling a little extended. Uh, when it snowed again this morning, I was like, I'm I'm done. <laughs> I thought it was supposed to be in the 40s this week in Rochester, and I was like, thank God, some of this icicles and snow is going to melt. And it was snowing this morning, and I was like, come on. But this is more about your books. So we're going to get into spoiler territory because I actually want to talk to you about these books a little bit. Uh, so I enjoyed this book. I thought it was a really interesting storyline following a mother and son as they travel the Comic-Con circuits. Uh, something that I want to do post-pandemic uh, is actually go to a Comic-Con. But then the way you like intertwined her telling episodes of the TV series that they were on together i really that her the father and her were on together and then i noticed that uh is it the show writer's wife was missing and i had formed a headcanon of what had happened to the show writer's wife and then when we find out what actually happened to her i was like i was not expecting that that was a great twist. So, I don't know if you saw my face, but I had a moment there. I was like, "Wait, what does happen?" Oh, yeah, know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, that. Um, so that book grew out of like and it, this is so basically when I actually start writing a book, what what is happening is like a big idea is is hitting a smaller idea, and. Um, and I'm, I'm finding a way into like telling a story in an environment. So, and I remember I was, uh, I was, I've been a regular at New York city comic-con for a, a number of years, like just as a, as a fan. Um, and I was going down there. Um, and I remember like walking towards the, the Javits center, which is in like the abandoned warehouse district of New York. Like <laughs> you have to like, you get off of times square. There's a, there's a subway stop now, but back in the, back in the day, by which I mean like 2012, um, you get off at like times square and then you just hike. And it's uh, like weather is variable. And, and, but at some point you start to see like, it's the, the, the convention starts to sort of congeal. It starts to like raise out of, <laughs> like you're seeing more people cosplaying it's not like it's it's a very i know this now i didn't know this at the time it's very different from any other con in that like the scale of it within new york city is actually really small <laughs> like so new york city comic-con and san diego comic-con have about the same attendance but when you drop a like a quarter of a million fans into san diego it transforms the entire city Whereas like when you drop those people into New York and then you move like 10 blocks away, nobody gives a crap. <laughs> um, and so, but like this, I, I was sort of watching, you know, I talked, I, I mentioned this idea of like found family and about community. Like I was watching this community come together, like just assemble. And, um, and that was like really fascinating to me. And, um, and that got me thinking, oh, I, and I, at the time I had, uh, I had just become a step parent and my, my kid was like six or seven. And I, I did not bring him to, to Comic-Con because it is a, 
is a terrifying scrum <laughs> of humanity. Um, but I was really starting to watch the way that he processed stories, um, that he that he listened to to narrative or that that he watched TV. And I think there's there's this assumption with kids that young that there is like a full on what we call a suspension of disbelief that there's like no ability to um, to separate uh, fantasy and reality. And that's not in fact true. Like, uh, I mean, maybe that's true of some kids, but like there is, there's a really like uh, amazing acceptance and absorption of, of the rules of a fictive text and, um, and a willingness to, to play by those and play with those. And so the idea of like setting a kid in this, um, in this community that is driven by various fictions um, was really like, was really appealing to me. And then the idea of, um, of uh, Valerie and Alex, um, the, the mother and son in the book, um, moving cross country and, and that a, a custody dispute was at the sort of heart of this um, which I don't feel is a spoiler. No, <laughs> um, no I don't feel like, like it's a spoiler, yeah, it, really. You know, it's a weird thing. Like, early in the drafts of the book, I kept that a secret for, like, 150 pages. And uh, when when the book found a publisher, and I, like, one of the first talks with the editor was like, well, that that needs to be in the first, like, 10 pages. It needs to be really clear what's happening. And she was right, because she's brilliant. Um but that was that was sort of that was the smaller story. It was like thinking about this larger environment and thinking about um, how a kid's mind works, and um, and then the the sort of the inciting thing, the plot that was actually going to move them um, from. And the, the weird thing is, they uh, within the book they never go to a comic con that I had attended. <laughs> so they they start in Cleveland. Yep. Because uh, which I, I picked Cleveland, not because uh, uh, because of any Comic Con that's there, but because it's it's where uh, Siegel and Schuster, who created uh, Superman, are from. So that's why we start in. And then um, for reasons they do not go to San Diego, they go to a made up convention in in Los Angeles. Um, but at the time, I had never been to San, uh, San Diego either, and I'm I'm glad I didn't try to write it because I had no I like. San Diego blew my mind and not entirely in a good way. Um, it, it is, it, it was so bizarre um, and so completely different from anything that I had experienced. But yeah, like I couldn't find a way to backtrack them to New York City Comic Con and I couldn't find a way to land them in San Diego. So I, I sort of made up a series of, of comic book conventions. And the only one that I have since been to is, is C2E2 in in Chicago, they go to Chicago now. Yep, that's Chicago. <laughs> yeah, um, I actually a re- that is that is based on a, a real actual comic book convention, which is a lovely convention. I think uh, one of the strongest scenes in the entire book to me happens. I think it's at the Chicago Con. Uh, it's um, when the comic book writers all go out to dinner, and uh, oh, what's the main female uh, comic book writer's name? Uh, Gail that I thought it was Gail um I just didn't want to mess that up but they she's brought to dinner with that really famous misogynistic uh comic book writer and she calls him out and 
it just made me think of all the things that have been coming out, both in comic book writing, but most recently the Joss Whedon stuff that's kind of come out. And I'm like, that scene was so strong because it's was just so true into something people don't regularly address. Yeah, you know, oddly enough, so that character, and I cannot remember what that character's name was, um, that character was based on Alan Moore. Um, and it was based on his work, on, on problems in his work. And uh, it has sort of come back and resonated in the actions of other writers. Um, but the, uh, the comic book writer who is a sort of character in it was, was Gail, and she is very clearly based on Gail Simone. And she was only gonna be a bit character. I mean, uh, there are a lot of like, there, there are characters that ended up sort of on the cutting room floor that were based, like there was a Neil Adams character and there was a Grant Morrison and there, uh, there was a Rod Liefeld and, and a lot of it got cut because it was too sort of inside baseball. And, um, but Gail, uh, was going to be in like one scene and she was so much fun to write that I kept writing her and she became one of the central point of view characters in the book. And then at some point I realized I had this book that was going to come out and it had a character that was clearly based on Gail Simone and I hadn't even changed the first name. Um, and so the book was under contract, uh, like it hadn't, it, it had sold uh, to a publisher, but it wasn't out yet. And I was at New York City Comic Con and I went up to Gail Simone uh, at her signing table and I was like, hi, I have a book and you're in it. And that, that was all I said to her. Like, <laughs> it was the equivalent of like telling someone that you want to make a skin suit out of them. And she looked at me with like, it was kind of weirded out, semi horrified uh, expression. And she's like, okay, th thanks. And uh, she signed. A copy of my book and that was uh that was it and then like two years later because publishing moves really slowly um i i met her at emerald city comic-con in, in uh, seattle and gave her a copy of the book and kind of explained like i was that that one spaz at uh at new york city comic-con like two years ago and she looked at me kind of horrified and <laughs> backed away slowly uh, well i loved what happened with her character like the how her and um, Brett got hooked up to write a comic book together for one of the big two after uh, his writing partner kind of betrayed him in a way. And I, I was like, this is actually like that. It was a really compelling storyline. I thought it was a really well-written, compelling storyline in the book. Oh, thanks. So, and the last thing I want to mention in this is headcanon that I put in. So I read this after the somebody people so i think i was expecting way more sci-fi than it was because it was more of a human story so i created my own headcanon that alex was looking for the magical words at the uh beginning of the book and the end of the book kind of ends with him saying something but we don't know what it is and my headcanon is that he finally found the magical word that did something um, this is like the, the weird thing that I have had to admit about the ending of the book. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, I'm not saying you have to know. I'm just wanted to tell you, no, this no, is the I, head canon I've made. I think that's great. Book. I, um, 
I really like ambiguous endings. And I, um, I really, again, you know, this is spoiler for a book that came out five years ago. Um, I, I always knew that this, that that book was going to end on a moment of like, like full on ambiguity. Um, and, and that it was going to sort of point back to the beginning in a certain way. Um, but that like, I didn't want to decide um, for the reader how that ended and was so sort of dedicated to that, that like, I don't, if you were to ask me like, okay, what happens a minute later? I, I don't, I don't know any more than, than a reader would. I don't know if I want you to know because I like the headcanon I created that he created <laughs> the yeah, magical I mean, word that actually did something. So yeah. Yeah. He turns out to be a resonant. And... <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Well, I, I mean, I guess that brings us, we can talk about these two together because they're the, my new favorite word duology. I, I think duology, I'm saying yeah. du- uh, the somebody people and the nobody people. Um, sorry, I said I read the somebody people first. I meant the nobody people. Oh, I, I, read, I, I read the first book. and That would have been confusing otherwise. It would have been very confusing. <laughs> I really loved this storyline, these characters. Um, I think I read these both in 2020. I finished the nobody people like right at the start of the pandemic. And then the somebody people came out midway through and I read it in like a week and a half uh, to finish up that storyline. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So those, I mean, since we've talked a bunch about X-Men, those, those are my, these are my X-Men books. Um, and they, they started quite literally as a, as an X-Men pitch. Um, I, 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 I'm not going to get deep into it because it involves like a very specific moment of comic book continuity, but um, I like got it in my head that I was going to try to pitch a, a small X-Men series to Marvel. And um didn't happen <laughs> and when uh and, and my literary agent had been encouraging me to to try my hand at, at writing uh sci-fi and I, my thinking was like i've read a lot of sci-fi i've never tried i've never at all tried i mean there are bits in uh 100 worlds that like engage with ideas of sci-fi but it's mostly about fandom um, and so I, I didn't think like that kind of big world building is not, uh, wasn't something that I had in my skill set. And, um, but, but it occurred to me that I had spent a lot of time thinking about this X-Men pitch and which was about sort of bringing things back to, to basics for, for certain reasons. And so I, I was thinking about like sort of filing the serial numbers off X-Men. Um, but it it moved really quickly beyond that, which was um, getting to the, well, it, it started, <laughs> it started with something that has always bothered me about X-Men. And this is another one of these, like where does, uh, where the metaphor is unstable is that uh, Charles Xavier in, in the comics is always like, oh, well, he's the Martin Luther King Jr he's this but but he's also closeted he's like traditionally for like 50 some years of the comics 
he is a mutant rights activist who does not is not publicly a mutant. I'm like, so well, that is a problem. And the fact that like the that the Xavier School is in Westchester and like tucked away in uh, in downstate New York is a problem. So those were like those were things that when I was thinking about this pitch that I had in mind. And um, and so it kind of started from there. And I was like, okay, so what is the core thing here? What is um, what is this actually about? And um, and so that the books. The, the big idea of the books evolved from there um, and w- like we're about ideas of, of closeting um, but also like being being sort of central being like weirdly a, a sort of little enclave uh, so the school in there there is a an Xavier school uh, analog in the books but it, it's in the middle of New York um, it's actually the address is the literary agency that represents me it's a like lexington and 57th um but um i I wanted to think about ideas that this metaphor could actually work and um a lot of them mapped onto ideas about uh disability rights and so one of the big um one of the big books that sort of inspired me was a book called deaf president now which is about uh gallaudet university and the the first time that they that the students um sort of the the president was their president was resigning and they had always been uh the the school is school for the deaf and it had always been overseen by a, a a hearing uh president and so there was this revolutionary movement uh within the campus community uh advocating for a deaf president now um so that that sort of figured in and um but i was also really interested in ideas of generational difference and like how how our kids are just perpetually weird to us <laughs> like how you just look at your child some like sometimes you look at your child and you're like oh yeah like we have so much in common and then there are times that you look at, at this kid and you're like where did you come from like you have nothing common with me or your mother and like that that thing that you just did is completely bizarre to me and that as a parent that's where I could understand why you'd be scared of mutants like that's where I understood that the x-men metaphor is terrifying because it's it's terrifying because your kid could suddenly be one and that you would feel this distance from them and then like how do you sort of work through that? And so again, I, I started to feel this, this idea of like a big idea meeting uh, a smaller idea. And, and also it was 2016 and the idea of, of demographic replacement um, to use like the, the word that was being used in Charlottesville uh, by these people like rioting with tiki torches. But this idea of like a demographic that holds like the bulk of the economic power, the bulk of the political power being sort of panicked about the idea that that they're being displaced or replaced. And so um, those were sort of the ways that I, that I was approaching this metaphor and how, like how you can make this metaphor, um, how you can strip it bare and then like bring it, bring it back into the world. 
so that was sort of that was sort of the beginning of that book and then it it um the sort of small window in because again like i i was not a sci-fi writer so i was like when my agent first said that i'm like well no i like writing about people who are sad in rooms like that's kind of my my jam as a as a literary writer and uh and so i was like well how can i find the these these people that like have superpowers but are also sad in rooms and and that that was when uh the idea of avi hirsch who's the the sort of protagonist for the first half of the first book um who does not have superpowers but finds out about these people and finds out that his his daughter um has has powers um that was uh that was sort of where it began and then i I was really interested in this idea of someone who imagines himself as the protagonist of a story because he's never been told that there could be any other role for him um which is to say a a white cishet male (laughs) um and and the ways that that malfunctions the ways that that actively causes harm and so like you know, to the extent that Avi drives that first book and, and he doesn't entirely, like at some point, I, I think, I hope that he like sort of switches from protagonist to antagonist. And it's it's out of like a, a just sort of misunderstanding of who he is in the story. Um, but that was, it was his character that sort of let me tell this bigger story. Yeah, I, I don't know if I thought of him as an antagonist by the point that I would think that happened but I no longer thought of him as the protagonist and he was a very broken character by that point I didn't think of him as an antagonist just from reading it but yeah, I mean I think antagonist is, is strong but like there is a way like making choices to act because like he he decides to do certain things because he feels that he needs to be driving the action of the story. And, oh, and, yeah. those, and those things are deeply harmful. Oh, like 100%. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, you had some very strong motifs in that first book. Like, I'm just thinking about, you know, once the residents are out and the public knows the secret camps that get established and the fact that uh, Fatima's. Uh, technology is now being used against them because she was trying to protect her own people. I thought that was just super strong in the first book, like as a motif. Uh, yeah. I mean, Fahima is one of my favorite characters. Fahima is, is sort of the equivalent of Gail in the first book in that like she was going to be a, a fairly minor character or a sort of support character, but she's the most fun to write. <laughs> um, and one of the the things about the 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 mutant metaphor, the superpower metaphor that gets to me is that like intersectionality falls out. And so it's like if I'm gonna do this, um, I really need to be aware of what other identities people are bringing into this. It can't just be like everybody's like, oh, I'm a resident now and like everything else about me is is secondary to that. And so with uh, with Fahima, who's um, who is Muslim, who's queer, um, her understanding of what the government might do in these situations is vastly different from characters who are 
who are white, who are like coming from a more secure place. And that causes her to make um, sort of pragmatic decisions and, uh, and compromises in, uh, in ways that are like really interesting or fun to play with as a writer. And, um, you know, the second book ends up being sort of the redemption of, or like her working towards redemption. I don't think within the first book, she ever thinks of herself as having to be redeemed. And I'm not, I, I'm also not certain that she does. I'd like, I think there's a, there are strong justifications for everything that she does. Oh yeah. I a hundred percent think there's strong justifications, but it's interesting to see that like she was trying to protect her people and in doing that brought injury to her people and that that's where her redemption in the second book comes from i don't the second book's newer so i don't want to go into as many spoilers with that uh you know i'm trying to stay vague on both of these uh but i thought the second book that jump at the very beginning and you having to describe the new world after the events of the first book was really you know shocking uh these cultures that you establish the fact that there's like three well-established cultures two within the resonant world and then there's the human world culture well you know this is this is something that i think comes out of comes out of x-men books uh to some extent although it, it it like it's very heavy now this is this is kind of the thing that i was saying that like when the the House of X, Powers of X books were coming out, when when Jonathan Hickman took over, I was like, oh, there is a lot here that I have already written down, <laughs> and that will be coming out that that they're that they're doing. But this idea that because these ideas um, involve involve sort of evolution and like next step and 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 betterment, like there's a social implication there too, and. Um, and I, I started to, it was something that I was playing with in the first book uh, in the, the sort of enclave community around North Avenue in Chicago um, that like, oh, well, how do we, um, how do we leave behind, how do we leave behind everything <laughs> to some extent? You know, there, there's a moment where uh, in the first book where Carrie and Miguel um, have like just kind of gotten involved in like some sexual experimentation and their thinking is like, well, this is something that we're supposed to do because we're supposed to be more evolved. But at that moment for them, they're like, actually, no, like we monogamy is where we want to be. Um, and that this, this idea of sort of larger social evolution is not, they haven't gotten there yet. Um, and, and the, the implication is like, maybe that, uh, maybe they're not going to, but I, if I, if I was going to have, the the superpowered people win they had to do something good <laughs> like the whole the whole premise of like a, a superpowered minority group is that they might bring better ideas to the table and this is something that i think um x-men has not had that many opportunities to explore um is like well if if you remove oppression from the equation what are what are the benefits that accrue and like how how do these power because within within the comics and within the movies the x-men are always just fighting like that's the only thing you can do with these amazing powers that you've been given and like that is not the best use of aurora monroe like if you have weather controlling powers you can do better things than zap someone with lightning 
you can, you know, you could change food distribution. Like you could affect global economies. And so I wanted, I, I wanted this idea and it within the second book, it's really controlled uh, or, or contained within the Eastern half of America. But like we, we will build a sort of city on a hill um, and we will slowly like bring that to the rest of the world. And of course there, there are problems with that. Um, but, but that's where I wanted to start from was like the reinvention really of New York City um, structurally and uh, economically and physically. It's like, what if, you, what if you let somebody else like entirely outside of that system take it over and they have like almost unlimited resources, what, what happens there? And yeah, I, I wanted to do something other than it becomes a bleak dystopia because like any dystopia is a utopia for someone. So I, I wanted to look at the utopian side of it. Yeah, I really liked that um, duality between the utopia, at least in the second book early on, between the utopia that was developing, but now that the power structure had changed and the residents were the key power player in America, the, the political structure had also highly changed in your book by that point. Um, but that there was now a group of extremist residents that were now taking things out on the regular humans. Now there was something else going on there that I don't want to spoil, but I, I thought that was really cool because there is this, you know, they're bringing this utopia, but it comes with this downfall, at least initially of this extremist group within the resident world. Well, you know, a lot of that, I, I think of, I think of the books as having sort of three generations and that like, um, there is the sort of, uh, there is Kevin Bishop who founds the school and keeps residents closeted for, for a long time. And, and Raymond Glover, who is his, uh, his partner um, and, and sort of antagonist. Um, and then there is a sort of practical, uh, there is Fahima Deeb who is making these sort of practical moves. And, uh, and then there, there, there are the kids and, um, and what you kind of see in the nobody people, and it, it's made like sci-fi level explicit. <laughs> um, it's like, like, let's just have it be a big metaphor. But what it's a metaphor for is like these ideas that have sort of um, necrotized and like, e even within leftist movements, these ideas that, um, that were like valid, but have to be, have to be sort of acknowledged, but ultimately shed. And that you move beyond, um, like, in that in that book, it's this idea of moving beyond a binary. You know, you you move beyond this idea of like it's us and them, and we have to destroy we have to destroy them. And so that that sort of lingering us versus them um, ethic becomes really explicitly toxic within the book, um, and and. I have this bad habit that, that I've noticed now that I, when I teach that I, I do this dialectic move. <laughs> like I do this little, which, which I think of as Kamehameha over and over again. Yeah. You know, I Dragon think Ball Z. Like doing, this is again, because I am old. I think of it as doing the imaginary rave globe, <laughs> um, but it's that, that sort of that dialectic thing where you like, you take to, you take a thesis and a, and an antithesis and and eventually the solution is is synthesis and so that that book is about like everybody both of these older generations needing to sort of cede power 
uh, to, to give that up and say like, okay, well, we've, we've come this far. We actually don't know what the solution is. So you kids take it. Um, although, you know, in the book, it's a little more of the kids being like, okay, you guys don't know. We're going to take it. You, you know, you bringing this up makes me think a little bit about uh, Kevin and Raymond and their initial conflict because Raymond becomes the West Coast hippie guy originally and Kevin kind of teams up with uh, Patrick and Sarah's parents to become hardcore capitalist early on, buying buildings in New York City and buying up a whole block of fancy homes. And I was like... Oh man, they they weren't really they were living that 1950s 60 regular culture when they did that, but they used their powers to kind of advance that. Yeah, you know, with um with with Kevin Bishop, um you know, it's a funny thing like when I wrote the first book, I really um I I have a bad habit of like keeping cards too close to my chest in early drafts, and um I did not make it explicit that he was queer. And so I had this weird thing where like an entire population had decided to stay closeted or been convinced to stay closeted. And it wasn't really clear what the initial motivation for that was. And then when I, when I decided to make that explicit within the text and, and say like, well, have him say like, this is my experience of being other. Um, and this is why you keep secret about it. Uh, it started to make a lot of sense. So like, he is he is mapped onto a, a certain version of sort of queer politics, um, whereas whereas Raymond is 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 coming from a very different one. So, um, you know, I, I talked earlier about these sort of layers of the metaphor within within X Men, but they are that they are very explicitly like the queer politics layer of uh, of the mutant metaphor. And their decisions really come out of that, and um, and I, I like I, I thought that was a lot of fun, and that there was still like there was still something that bound them together. Um, for it, you know, they they are based on the fact that like the queer energy between Magneto and, his, and Xavier is like palpable <laughs> um, in the comics, in the movies, what have you. Um, they're like they are sort of the greatest couple that isn't. Um, and, and so I just, one of the things that I wanted to, to play around with was like, well, what happens if you just make that subtext text? Um, and what happens is, is really cool stuff. And, um, so yeah, like they are by the end, neither of them is, is blameless. Neither of them hasn't done terrible things, but you can kind of see like, I, I hope like why both of them do it. And they're both, they're both really out of, out of fear. And one is, is about a, a sort of fear of discovery. And, and one is about a, a fear of sort of elimination and a, a fear of like, frankly, genocide. Like, yeah. I, I think Raymond Glover is, is, is driven by this, what becomes an obsession that like, if they know about us, they will kill us and kevin bishop really only goes as far as like well then let's just not let them know about us like let's let's do let's live well but live quietly so you see these these little communities these little enclaves and and that is like 
a lot of those ideas were came out of researching like mid 20th century queer culture it's like you have you have provincetown you have fire island and you you go there and you like you live like nobody's looking for a while and then you know either you don't leave or when you leave you keep quiet what you are yeah it it was strong and no neither of them are blameless by the end of the second book they both have their major flaws uh i think the only other thing i wanted to bring up uh you know i focused on a, a scene that really stuck out to me in your first book uh between these two books the scene that really stuck out was after the pivotal event in the first book and more people become powered one of the u.s senators gets powers and now hates who he is so much he votes against his own interest and then if i remember burst into a ball of flame if i remember right uh that was just such a strong section to just be like oh you can't even relate to what you are at this point yeah and and again that is that is leaning on the idea of this of of this as a a metaphor for queer rights like um that is sort of the the log cabin republican uh thing of like how do you like how do you exist as a member of the republican party as and also queer um and how do you you know how do you actively work against like support an agenda that dehumanizes you um and so it was just kind of that with that character it was just that push to a crisis moment yeah it and, was just a really subtly un, very unsubtly on my part he bursts into flames yeah it was a very strong moment though i because i think all the events that were driven after that uh explosion that created more resonance were just very strong events that occurred and that one was just to me stuck out as like oh my god i can't believe this just happened type thing so oh thanks yeah so that was a that was a strong moment so i think with that uh i'm gonna tell my listeners go out find bob's books they're good read them do you have anything to plug uh no not at the moment um you know like i mentioned publishing works really slowly so i have a lot of stuff that's in very early uh sort of uh prenatal stages right now (laughs) um that is not like a reference to having another kid uh, but yeah uh i don't have anything that's like looming um but i'm i'm on i'm on the twitters uh more often than i should be at uh at bob prol and um the website is just bobprol.com but there's not much going on there and uh no, that's, I'm sort of plugging away at, I have one book that's done and is looking for a publisher and I have two projects that are not done. <laughs> hey, that's, I've got a bunch of friends who they make comic books and they do it purely through Kickstarter and they've tried to get me to write for them and I have the hardest time sticking to it. I, I can come up with storylines. I can come up with plot points, but getting it past that point I give you so much credit for being able to stick with a story for as long as you do. I was talking with somebody about this the other day. It's like so much of 
of writing is like boring mechanics and math. Um, <laughs> you know, for these books, uh, which are like massively larger, like I had spreadsheets <laughs> and there were times I would have to go back like, like, okay, well, let me open up Excel and see if this person is dead. <laughs> um, because you can't like, you're holding this huge mechanism in your mind. And, um, and it, it, it's a matter of like, yeah, like the, the idea that, you know, I've got a book full of ideas that, that might be actual books at some point, but the, the work is sitting down and be like, all right, well, how do you actually like accomplish this? And, and the fact is like, you, you still like, you like have to mime out thing, you know, with, with the, somebody people, there's a lot more violence. And I would sit here in my office, like, okay, if she's got a knife and she's holding a knife like this and he's like that, you know, and you're like stage fighting with yourself, um, which is like a really bad Billy Idol song. And um, yeah, it, it's a lot of boring, boring work, which I, which I happen, luckily for me, I happen to love. So you just got to find one of those nice maps and some miniatures, start rolling D20s, and then you can map out the fights and, you know, full on dungeon master and play all the player characters yourself, which is pretty much what you're doing. Yeah, I was, some, I was, I was at an author dinner. I was at dinner with a couple of authors before a, a convention event. Um, Chuck, Chuck was one of them. Uh, and the other one of the other people there was like, he had started taking uh, fight lessons. And he's like, I feel like you can't write a fight scene uh, unless you've actually like, you know, trained in martial arts. And, and meanwhile, I'm just thinking of myself, like sitting here, like, I've got the pen and this person's neck is there. Like all by, <laughs> like all by myself in my office, clearly visible through my, my windows to the, the whole neighborhood as I like <laughs> stage a fight with myself. Which is a lot like writing when you think about it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, so I end uh, every episode with a quote. So I went through your books and I pulled one of the quotes you used in your book to start a section to end this out. So um, let me try to not mess this up. Everything in nature is perfectly real, including consciousness. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. Not only have the chains of law been broken, they've never existed. Demons never guarded the stars. The empire never got started. Eros never grew a beard. From Hakim Bey. So. Good way to end. Like that. That's the episode. Thank you, Bob. Thanks very much. Podcast this and it was the best ever.